Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Udemia, and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that, all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him, for he had healed so many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And, strict, and he strictly ordered them to not make, to, not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called him to those and called him to those who desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, from whom he had also named his apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he came to name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name... <laughs> Sons of Thunder... <laughs> <laughs> Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and the son and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to, went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered, and he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sisters and mother. This is God's word. You may be seated. If you've uh, if you got kids, you're taken back to the kids' room. Now's your moment. The door is open. It's on the left back there. I, I, love, uh, I love when kids read the Bible and are surprised by things, like what obviously just, you know, sons of thunder? What? Um, I, used to, uh, I used to sit down with a, a younger student that it was kind of in a ministry I worked with, and he was, he was great because he would just respond. He'd be like, why did Jesus say that? That's weird. He would I, anyway. So much fun. I, I love that. So let's let's pray and then we'll jump in. Father in heaven, thank you for just this chance to be with your people, and we're we're grateful to be gathered together uh, under your word, and we're grateful that you've been good to us, that you have given us so many good gifts, that you've given us one another, that you've given us our church that you've given us your word and the gospel. And as we think about this just final, final layer of this, uh, this series where we've thought about the disciples, it's, uh, it's amazing what you can do in bringing us together. It's a challenge, but it really is beautiful. And we're grateful for a God that can do what the systems of our world cannot do, um, that can overcome what all of our other ideologies cannot overcome, uh, and who can give us a hope that nothing else can give us. So help us to see that. Uh, help our imaginations to, uh, to be enlivened as we, as we think about the text this evening, but also help us to be just more and more in awe of who you are and what you've done and what you're capable of. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So... This is, uh, this is our final in our Diverse Disciples series, and so this has, been, this has been our summer project, and many of you have been with us. Of course, we looked at, we looked at disciples like John, uh, if you remember. That was our first one we looked at, and kind of the, uh, the thing that I tried to get us to imagine was, you know, what would it be like to be with a disciple like John, who is, who's, he's the beloved disciple, and he's always there in all the important moments, and he kind of is Jesus' special someone who is there for all these things. I mean, we can tend to think of that and go, wow, what a guy, what an amazing guy. But when, when we were talking about that, I, I told you, I confessed to you that for me, that, that was like the kid in Sunday school who always had all the answers. Uh, that was kind of the, uh, the, the Christian who seemed to have all the inside knowledge and just all the great experiences. And I've kind of struggled with those folks, honestly, uh, throughout the years. And 
You know, it's, maybe it's not so simple to get along with somebody uh, like John. And of course, we've talked about, uh, we talked about Thomas and we talked about his, you know, his, how we tend to think of him as the doubter, you know, from this one moment. But how Jesus really, really came through and gave him exactly uh, what he asked for and that outside of that one moment, Thomas really, really didn't doubt. He, he committed his life to Jesus and followed him. We talked about people like Simon the Zealot. I mean, here's somebody who's committed himself uh, to the overthrow of the Roman government, most likely, at, at, the, at the most. At the least, this was somebody who was very zealous for the law of God. Maybe that's what the word zealous means. But whatever it is, he's, he is passionate about following the laws and the rules and seeing things established the way they ought to be. And then he's walking side by side with Matthew whose whole you know, identity is that of somebody who had acquiesced to kind of Roman ways and had cheated his uh, brothers and sisters of Israel and who, who probably hadn't really given himself to the law of God at all. And imagining two people like that following Jesus around is shocking. It's frankly really surprising. Uh, John did a really good job last week of talking about Judas and highlighting the shame uh, that he was probably dealing with. We tend to think of him as the devious betrayer, right? And, and John talked about all the, the pictures all, that you see of you know, him. He's just like a weasel. He's, uh, he's going to get you. And uh, no, probably not, because the disciples, they would have all seen it coming, right? They would have been like, well, clearly this guy, and they would have stopped it. He was probably awesome. He was probably a great guy. They were probably all friends. Um, and then he, he gets caught up and, and then after getting caught up, if, if he just waited, if he just waited to see Jesus' restoration and resurrection, he, he, like Peter, could have been totally absolved, right? So we've gone through all of this. Uh, today, as this last one, I'm, I want us to imagine somebody who wasn't one of the 12, though there were Jameses in the 12, but let's, let's consider somebody who comes into the church is a leader, is there at the Jerusalem Council, writes the Gospel of James, the book of James, uh, James the brother of Jesus, and ask what that would be like. What would it be like to be James uh, the brother of Jesus? So, so think about this. Um, just, just try. I'm an only child. This one's hard for me. Some of you aren't. What would it be like to grow up with Jesus in your house? right? Um, and then in your late 20s or so, be expected to follow him as your great teacher and rabbi and God. That, that, would, be, that would be a hard thing to do. Um, just yeah, just, just for a minute, maybe some of you all have the same presuppositions as I do that there is a God Okay, but, but even if you're not there, just presuppose it for a second. Okay, there's a God, and that God has entered into creation in the form of a child and happens to live in your house. Um, what in the world <laughs> would that be like? What would you experience in that situation? I mean, how did people experience him in his humanity, his real, actual humanity? Um, what was that like? We have one snippet, right? Luke 2, 42 to 52. So let's just see what we can grab from this. Um, when he was 12 years old, his family went up to Jerusalem according to custom. The feast had ended, and as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents didn't know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, but they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Uh, here's where it gets interesting. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. That's, yeah, parents, astonished? Yeah, very astonished, right? Three days, haven't seen your, your kid. Um, and his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. That sounds bible -y. I don't know. Imagine your mother 
what were you thinking? We have been looking for you for days, right? I, I don't know, something like that. And he said to them, now imagine this, right? You're, you say this to your child. You know, a couple of us have older kids, but you say this to your child, and they, they look back to you and said, why are you looking for me? Um, did you not know I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand, this is what the Bible says clearly, they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. <laughs> they, they, they go, what? Right? They're going, I, what are you talking about? And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and favor with God and man. Um, what insight do we get here? Jesus, as a child, it seems, was, was a submissive child. As he grew physically, he grew in wisdom. Um, but also, he had this, um, he was difficult to understand, right? His, his parents didn't understand what he's saying to them. They, they don't understand the whole context of kind of what he's growing into. Uh, he's, he's difficult to understand. In our sermon text, uh, Mark 3, that Abby just read, we start to hear that Jesus' mother, Mary, now, so he's, he was 12, now he's about 30 years old. So we're flashing forward 18 years of their time with him. And Jesus' mother, Mary, and his siblings, and, we, and you heard me read from Matthew at the very beginning, he had brothers and sisters, uh, they have now gone from just you know, potentially not understanding to believing that he is going insane. I mean, that's where it gets. That he's going off the rails, that he's losing his mind. And the context um, for, for this uh, Mark 3 is that Jesus has just begun this public ministry and very recently some demon-possessed people, and you could, you could read that of like, okay, so what's my closest experience to that? I mean, the people that I have dealt with who've reported that they are, are dealing with Satan himself have been categorized as schizophrenic, okay, for me and my experience, and I have had a couple of these experiences. Um, and, and some of these folks, they'll speak. I mean, there was a guy I visited um, at, at Palo Verde, and he, he told me, Satan tells me to do these kinds of things, and Jesus tells me to do these kind of things, and I know I should follow Jesus, but what Satan tells me to do is very it's what I want, and I'm conflicted. And interestingly, I'm looking at him and going, you're saying what I think we all are dealing with, interestingly, but really clearly. Um, so I tend to kind of presuppose in those situations that those folks might not be entirely wrong, okay? Maybe they're correct. But just, just imagine, imagine this, um, that one of, of those folks, your kid is growing up and some of these folks are around and they come down to your kid and they get on their knees and say, you are God. This is a, this is a difficult scene to imagine, right? And you met my kid reading, right? And for me to imagine that kind of scene one of our houseless friends here at the church struggling with mental illness or something, you know, bows before her, says, you are God, I'm not comfortable with this scenario. I, I'm worried. And then if my kid now grown up, not only like that happens, but they just receive it and seem very like this is normal. Uh, this is difficult. Um, this is difficult to handle. Now, Mary, no, so Joseph is no longer in the picture, it seems. He's, he's probably died. He was probably a lot older than Mary when they got married. But Mary and the siblings of Jesus are watching these things occur. And this is just before they start to think that he's losing his mind. And they're appraising this situation. And now Mary had a benefit that you and I wouldn't have had in that she'd had right, an angelic vision and an angel had come and said, your son who you bear will be Emmanuel, God with us, and he will save his people from their sins. So she had that, and she's still not really picking it up. She's going, okay, maybe 
Maybe not. Um, maybe this is all just, just a broken mess. And the, the siblings are, you know, you got to imagine, they, they're going, hey, this is Jesus, my brother. Um, you, don't, you don't ever read of them, like, trashing him. So maybe they're saying he's a good guy. Um, we've heard that he's special. There's kind of a family narrative saying that he's unique and special and that God's chosen him. Um, but this is getting weird now. This situation is getting very weird. Have you ever had one of those moments um, where it hits you, and, and I don't know, for me it happens a lot in, in your 20s, uh, where you, you, you realize my family is kind of weird, right? Have you, have you had it yet? If you haven't, I'm just letting you know. <laughs> it's going to happen. And then we're, we're sometimes, like you appraise your family and you go, it turns out my whole life, this was all, I thought this is how everybody operates. And you grow up and you go, oh, not everybody does these things. Like this is just us and our strange universe. It, it happens, right? This is kind of, this is typical. It's, I know it's strange to think about, but seriously, James, the brother of Jesus, his siblings, they're probably in one of these moments where they're going, does anybody else any deal with this? <laughs> or is this just us? I think it's just us. Um, and so it's not surprising when John, the, the apostle, said his, you know, his, even his brothers had no faith in him. They did not. None of them. None of them. And it's... In a way, it's surprising. You go, you walked with Jesus. You walked with him his entire, but in a way, it's not because they were so close. Um, I, I think we're more likely to be skeptical of things the closer we are. That's, that's an interesting, that's a piece of where I kind of want to go with this. I think we're more likely to be skeptical of things the closer we are because we pay the most attention to them. We're most impacted by them. We, we like look close and anal analyze it so closely. And, uh, and I want to I explore that from Mark 3. I want to talk about why it's hard to be close to Jesus, then why it's easy to be close, and then I want to work out this last piece of what Jesus said about the will of God. So here's this, uh, this last part of Mark 3 again. His mother and brothers came, standing outside. They sent to him and called him, and a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, the crowd said to him, your mother and brothers are outside seeking you, and he answered them, who are my, my, mother's, my mother and my brothers? Um, this is what I've been saying. Jesus' siblings, his family, had a difficult time believing he was who he claimed. I read to you at the beginning where Jesus said that, you know, when he came even to Nazareth, it goes beyond just his family, right? It comes down to all the people who were in his kind of growing up context they, they didn't believe what he was saying, what he was doing. And he, uh, and he said, even a prophet's not accepted in his own hometown or amongst his own family members. All four gospels quote Jesus as saying this. It, it must have been something he, he said pro probably on multiple occasions. Um, this, there's this idea that for Jesus, if you were around him at all growing up, if you were in his area, the chances of you buying in early to who he was and what he was doing were, were low. Um, and, and he said, and he kind of put this principle out there, even a prophet, he's going beyond himself, even a prophet is not accepted in his hometown or with his own family. Um, I, I have seen, just to talk about the principle for a second, I've seen a, a, this bear out with younger people in the church. I think some of, some of us have experienced this. For me, um, I, I went from, when, between age 17 and 18, I went from like doing burnouts in the church parking lot in my lowrider to deciding I was going to be a leader in the church, like in one year. Um, and I remember I came back and told the church where I, where I went to church that, you know, I think God's called me to ministry. And I can imagine, I, you know, at the time it just seemed so reasonable. I got up, I'd been to a really exciting camp, and I was like, hey, uh, I, I've been called to ministry. How exciting is this? Aren't you guys, you know, how can I help? 
what can I do? And they're probably going, well, you could clean up what you did out there in the parking lot for starters, right? And then grow up for about 20 years. And it's, you know, that, that's probably where their heads were at at the time. But, but to their credit, they gave me the, this funny job where I was the bongo player. I kept attendance. Um, and I, I did hospital visits. And I helped with the grass. And uh, good for them, even to like let me be on staff at all. And so I learned a little bit about the grass and the bongos, you know, we didn't do too bad. And visiting the sick in the hospital was probably, that was probably the, the biggest training ground um, I had. But, but it's tough to believe that somebody who, who you've kind of you know, watched grow up and go through this process could be even called to ministry, let alone, you know, Jesus' situation, Right? Jesus was, he's, like I said, probably 30 years old. They knew his family. They were saying, isn't this the, the carpenter's son? Didn't we see, don't we know his mother and his brothers? And then there's this little statement that, that comes up uh, in other points where they say, isn't he from Nazareth? And that's interesting. I've talked to you all about that here at this church before because for the longest time, we thought that probably Nazarenes were just kind of crummy people or they were, maybe they were poor or something like that, but, but archaeology seems to be bearing out another layer of this, what it might have meant to be a Nazarene. Because chances are that Nazareth was, was a Roman garrison, which would mean that this is kind of where the Romans set up shop and where they were preparing for some of their campaigns. And so chances are, if you're a Roman garrison town and you're a carpenter, if you're Joseph, chances are you're not just making like little chairs you might be a carpenter for Rome, actually. And if, you, and, if, and if you were from out of town, you'd at least assume that was possible. So when you think Jesus was a carpenter, I mean, what if, you know, do I have concrete evidence that Jesus didn't make chairs? No, I don't. But just the possibility that people had in their minds when they, when they encountered him, that he was from Nazareth, was very much like he not only is, is he you know, he's like this known person, he's the carpenter's boy, but, but he also maybe has been on the wrong side of things. Politically, socially, like, why would he be the savior of it? Why would he have anything to say? I mean, it's surprising to them for many reasons, right? Now, and, and extremely surprising, the closer you were, if you were family, if you were a cousin, if you were a brother. And a brief aside here, in case any of you have heard any of this stuff, but there's, there's some debate about these scriptures that these couldn't have been Jesus' brothers. This is usually in Catholic or more Orthodox circles because if Mary needs to be a saint and be totally pure of all things, then she couldn't have had any more children. Uh, there's no real, like, the Bible doesn't say that. And in fact, the, the clear meaning of the Bible seems to be obvious that he did have siblings, Okay. Um, but, but it would have been, it would have been tough. It would have been a really tough thing to believe. And James, who, uh, who I'm trying to kind of make the one we imagine about here, James, he's not the James of the 12 disciples. He comes along later. I mean, he becomes, he writes the book of James. He's on the Jerusalem council, deciding that the Gentiles can be included. He was Jesus's brother. And he ends up not only believing, but leading the church. But at first, for a long time, he wasn't there. We don't know when the switch happened. But for the longest time, it seems like within the entire lifetime of Jesus, he, he didn't believe it, okay? Now, I'm a little surprised by that, and I'm not. I'm saying it's, it's kind of reasonable, but then you go, wow, they, they knew. Gee, they saw it. Wouldn't you notice if your brother never sinned? Like, if your brother never sinned, wouldn't you notice and go, ah, oh, there's something about him? I, you know, but they couldn't see it. Something blocked. They were too close. They couldn't see it. They couldn't accept it. It wasn't clicking. And so that led me to this thought that I'd like us to ponder for a second. How much harder can it be than if it was hard to believe in a Jesus that you grew up with, how much harder is it to believe in somebody else, in somebody else's Jesus when you grow up with them? right? Like, 
or, or, to, or to take Jesus as seriously when you just grew up hearing all about it, your whole family assumed it, your brothers and sisters believed it. How hard to take Jesus seriously when it's just kind of been a common and a normal part of your life? I think often in, in church circles, we can unfortunately kind of scoff at things like, you could call it unbelief, you could call it deconstruction, you know, people who are, who are you know, questioning faith. But, but think about it. That, it is a hard thing to do. If it was difficult to meet Jesus, know Jesus, grow up in the same town as Jesus, and accept him as Lord and God, how much more difficult when you've grown up around people who say they believe in Jesus and really struggle to actually represent him well to you? That can be really difficult. It can be really difficult when your mom and dad say that Jesus is the center of our home, but it's not. And that's what you grow And it can be really easy to question all of that, right? When you're in a church situation, right, where the, the people are broken and they, they worship Jesus with their lips on Sunday and then they go out and they do other things, right? And, and unfortunately, I'm talking about me and you, right? That's not just the bad family and the bad church. It's us. Because if we're honest and we look at ourselves, I mean, do we indeed, you know, live for Jesus as much as we say we do in here? Are our lives centered around him as much as they ought to be? No, they are not. They're not. It, it can be difficult. I I think growing up in the faith can be an absolute, there are gifts to it. There are beautiful things to it. There's a beautiful heritage to it, but it can be tough. I've told you before about my guy at Raging Sage experience where I was prepping for the sermon, had the Bible out, and he came and he goes, oh, Bible guy. And I kind of looked at him and I said, well, I, I take it this interests you for some reason. And he goes, huh. you know, and I said, okay, what happened? And he, he just said, look, Ever since my sister became a Christian, it has been the worst thing for our family because all of the damaging things that she does, the, the terrible things that she does, now nobody can bring it up to her because, oh, Jesus already forgave me. So she can't hear any criticism, right? So she, this particular man knows someone, his sister, who has Jesus in her life, and I hope honestly does, but for him watching her on her journey, it is not making it easier for him. It's making it harder because she now has an excuse for her behavior and she's not dealing with the way that she hurts people. So for him, that baggage is like linked, linked up to Jesus. It, it, can be, it can be hard. And look, we here have a robust view of God and his ability to save. I want to make that really clear, because this is not a guilt trip. I'm just trying to get us to deal with reality. It is hard. Uh, what I want us to do is I want us to be really, really, really compassionate to people with doubts, because it's not crazy. If Jesus' brothers didn't believe in him, people can have doubts, okay, and not be, like, lost. That's a fair thing for them to deal with. But we also believe that God has this ability to call and save people. And I would say that James being like brought in to the church and becoming a leader in the church is maybe more of a miracle of God's grace, which is how anybody can see and come to Jesus, by the way. It's always a miracle. It's just as miraculous as that de the demon-possessed man saying, you are the son of God. That's how miraculous it is that any of us look at Jesus and say, you are God today. That's an ever. Like, it's that miraculous. It really is a work of God that we can see. I need a God from outside of myself to come and save me and tell me who I am and to change me and to offer his life for mine. This, we don't come to these conclusions by just, you know, sitting down and, and reading literature or something. This is like God at work, and we have to understand that. And so for James to go from being the disbelieving brother of Jesus to being a pillar and anchor of the church is because 
a, a resurrection miracle happened and Jesus reached into his soul and changed everything for him. And that's how we're all here. And that's how more people will come. And that's how the church will grow and it will continue on and on and on. But at the same time, when people have their doubts, please don't ever just go, well, what's wrong with you? Okay. If Jesus' brother and his mother didn't understand what was going on, people cannot understand as well. All right. John Simon, famous uh, theologian, uh, well-known in many circles, uh, said, it's hard to see the sacred when you've seen the ordinariness of all of it as well. And, uh, and I thought that was really good. The book is out very soon, I'm sure. Right. But um, it's hard. It's hard to see the sacred when you've seen the ordinary side of it. And how much more is true when you've seen the broken side of like Christians and Christian family. I would say to all of you who've seen the broken side, like, please know that these are just people in process. I mean, Jesus is not bound up in the people in process. Please know that. But then as the people in process, please understand that what you represent to people is very imperfect and, and hold it as such. It's really, really important. It can be hard to be close. That's my point. It can be hard to be close because it, just as it was hard for Jesus' mother and brothers to look beyond the ordinariness of their life and see, wow, God is bringing about his salvation for all time through Jesus, it, it can be hard for people who've seen broken and flawed you know, portions of our lives. But now, why? so that's why it's hard. Why is it easy? Um, Mark 3 goes on to say, looking at those who sat around him, Jesus said, here are my mother and my brothers. This is, this is a very difficult saying in a way, but in a way it's very simple. It's very face value. Basically, he's saying, this is my family here. All these people are like, are like family to me. And Remember, it said that there was a whole crowd gathered um, and his mother and brothers were outside looking for him. They're thinking he's going crazy. They're trying to help him out. And he, he says, hey, and he, he is not one who disrespects his mother. He, he cares for his mother and his brothers as he goes along. But he says, look, those who, uh, those who are here, this is my family. And there's more gathered before him than there are thinking he's crazy at this particular time. There are more close to him, coming to him, than there are those who are doubting. And so that begs the question, so what does it take to get close? And this is, this is the simple answer. What did those people do? Just let's get out of the theoretical. How did those people get close to Jesus? They seriously just showed up. They just showed up. And they just said, Jesus, who are you? Tell us what to do. Something of that kind of simple nature. They just sat before him and said, teach us what to do. That really is the essence of what it means to come to Jesus. Open-handed, who are you, what do I do? That could be a statement for how do you become a Christian. Come to Jesus and say, who are you, what do I do? That's all you have to do. Um, and, and you don't lean on your own understanding. Acknowledge him, he'll make your path straight. Um, that's all it takes. Look to him. Uh, gather before him. The complicated thing for um, what we're talking about in our, in our context here, diverse disciples, is when it's that easy to come to him, which it is, they're really, we're by grace alone people. Like that's, that's what we're all about as a church is like you only get to Jesus by sheer grace. That's the only way in. That is a very like narrow door but then anyone who comes in that narrow door is in, and this is where being a church comes into play. What does it mean to be a church? It means to be a group of people who have come in through the narrow gate through Jesus and are following him together. Um, and you look around, when, when it's that simple, when there's one principle and all it is is you come to him and say, who are you? Tell me what to do is anybody can do that from any background at all, from any life circumstance, any story, anybody can do that. And that's all they have to do to be in. That's all they have to do. And then you look around and you go, we don't have a lot in common other than Jesus. And that's, I mean, that's true here. It's, it's true in the global church. There's a lot of variety of people 
who've come and they've said, Jesus, who are you? Tell me what to do. And they look around and go, I'm in this, I'm in this group now. And that's cool and really complicated, right? It's cool and, and really, really, really complicated. Um, they have one common bond, Jesus, and faith in him is all they need. And, and you cannot, and, and this, I've said this before, and, and I'll probably even say it again tonight. Like, you don't get to pick the church. Jesus does, okay? And when those people come and they gather before Jesus and he receives them, you don't really have any more say in the matter other than, okay, Jesus, how do I walk with them? But how dare you reject someone Jesus has received? If Jesus would have so-and-so-and-so at, at his feet, can you imagine looking at him and going, I don't like these people, I'm out. That's a dangerous thing to do. Because you might find that you are not following Jesus in that moment. You should be really careful. We should be very, this is a big question. Jesus, who have you called me to walk with? And then I look to you and I walk with you. And, and kind of like what, you know, when, when Peter said to Jesus, what about John? And he said, that's not your business, what I do with John. You follow me. This is difficult. The, the gate in is so narrow. It's so simple. It's just come to Jesus. What do I do? Who are you? What do I do? And then, and then you're with whoever else has said that. All throughout the world, in your city, in your context. Just to, just to like land the plane of this summer series I mean, just think about that. What does that mean for us as a church? In our, in our context, Jesus has called us together. He's called us together. Are the reasons that tend to like want to strip us apart, would Jesus strip you apart over those reasons? If he wouldn't, you shouldn't go anywhere. We should fight for the unity of the church. This leads into... Kind of my last, my last idea here of the will of God. At the end of that, so Jesus has said, you know, these are my mother and my brothers. And then he says, whoever does the will of God, he is my, mother, or is my brother and sister and mother. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. It's really important to ask what's the will of God here, right? I mean, is this the general will of God that all things come to pass that, well, you can't do that. Only God does that. Like, whatever comes to pass is the will of God. None of us just do it. God does it. That seems to be a broader concept. Um, I don't think this is getting at, like, sovereignty and human responsibility, you know. I don't think this is, like, what school do you go to? What job do you take? What color car do you buy at the dealership? Will of God, you know, is it the will of God that I get the green truck or should I get the blue truck? And I tend to say, pick one and that's the will of God. Like whichever one you drive off with, turns out that's the will of God. I don't know. That's me saying, I don't know. And I don't think Jesus is getting into those weeds. I think Jesus elsewhere tells us very clearly what he means by this. There's no doubt, first of all, that it is the will of God that the church be united and distinct from the world by being united. Um, by the way, we cannot be distinct from the world if we're not united in Jesus. Because the world is not united in Jesus. The world, people are doing their own, their own thing for their own purposes. It's self-protective. It's self, you know, it's, it's, all, it's about, hey, me and, my, me and my group, me and my tribe, the people of Jesus have one thing in common. Like I've said, that's Jesus that binds them. That is distinct. That's part of this light of the world that we show to people. People should go, how do you do it? And there should be one explanation, and it should be because of the power of Jesus. That should be the explanation. 
Um, the gospel can create a family deeper than family that transcends all sort of differences and discrepancies by Jesus gathering them around him. And how, how do we know, other than me just saying that, how do we know that's the will of God? I, I read to you a couple weeks ago, John 17. Um, read it again. Just read it again. It leaves no question. It's Jesus' Jesus's longest recorded prayer. And if you want to know what the will of God is and what Jesus wants to see happen, I'll give you the summary, but go read it. Here's the summary. Jesus wants to fulfill the will of God by God being glorified in himself, number one. And how is that going to happen? Especially by his church being one as he and the Father are one. That is obvious and evident in John 17, okay? And so then you go, okay, so, so how does that kind of thing happen? That's the will of God. But then let's look at another Major example from earlier in the book of John, John 6. This is a little bit longer, but track with me. There's so many good themes in here that I think even pull together things from this sermon and I believe are going to lead us straight to the table. The disciples just saw Jesus and, and they saw him doing another one of these miraculous things that only God can do. He had taken a sack lunch and multiplied it and fed hillsides of thousands of people. And this is like, I know, unbelievable, which is where they're at. They're going, that does not happen. That's why they're so shocked, okay? And then Jesus, after he does this, he looks at them and, and he has, sometimes there's these kind of enigmatic things that Jesus says. And he just, <laughs> again, imagine you're with Jesus right now and You've just seen this crazy thing and you're going, how is this even possible? Were they, was everybody hiding bread in their pocket? What's going on? And he looks at you and says, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Okay, you're going, okay, okay. Uh, so then they say to him, one of them or all of them, they go, so what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus said this, this is the work of God, and he makes it singular. God asked you to do one thing, believe in him he has sent. Okay, believe in him he has sent. Okay, what, then what? It goes on. So they said to him, they said to Jesus, they, they're deducing now, he's talking about himself. And they said, what sign will you do that we can see and believe you? What work do you perform? Now they just saw the, the feeding of the 5,000, right? They're asking for more. They said, our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. It is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So they're talking about in, uh, in the wilderness after... Israel has come out of been delivered from slavery in Egypt, that God, through Moses, delivers them and then feeds them when they start to doubt, because they did. They'd gone through this great deliverance, and then they started to doubt, and they started to want to return to Egypt. And so he gave them bread. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you've seen me and do not believe. All the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And that's a strong statement right there, right? Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And here's our statement. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing that he's given me but raise it up on the last day. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. 
You want to know the will of God, the will of God that brings you into the family of God? Believe in the one he has sent. And you will never be cast out. The Jews grumbled when they heard this because they heard him say, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? Ah, here's the theme again. It's hard to be close. It's hard when you've seen the family, when you go, hey, this is just a common man. How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him on the third day. Here's Jesus saying, right again, on your terms, it's impossible. If you just, if you look at me and just, okay, this is, don't we know his mother and his brothers? Yeah, but I will bring everyone I call to myself, and no one can cast them out. This is the will of God. This is how you become family. This is how you're my mother, my brothers, my sisters. This is how you're gathered together. It's, yeah, it's hard to be close. It's hard when you've seen all these things. It's hard when things seem ordinary. But Jesus can supersede all of this and and bring you near and bring you close. And it, it is his will that you would believe in the one he has sent. And it is absolutely his will that everyone that he brings in would be unified and no one would be cast out. There's one way to enter the kingdom of God through Jesus. He is the bread of life. Whoever comes to him shall never be cast out. Questions to ask ourselves. Am I wishing Jesus would cast somebody out who he loves and wants to keep near? Am I tempted to stop following Jesus because I don't like the people he's gathered? Even more important, and maybe the place to start, do I live on the bread of life alone? Do I feast on Jesus alone? Or do I look elsewhere for my satisfaction and my identity. It's the will of God that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life and be raised up on the last day. Are you in the will of God? Let's pray. Father, make it so. I pray that we would be a people who, who come to you, who sit before you, where our number one question is, who are you, Jesus, and what would you have me to do? I pray that you would gather us together, that you would do the miraculous work. I mean, we think about this series we've been through that your brother James, who didn't believe in you, ended up joining with your people and becoming a Christian. We think about the fact that Thomas, the the doubting Thomas, the the man who said, "I, I need to see this to believe it, that you showed him, and he did believe. You did that miracle in his heart. We think about Peter, who was kind of, he he was so self-assured, and you bring him near, even to the point to where he is no longer nearly as divisive as he used to be, where he even needs to be corrected by Paul and told to stand up for things, actually. We think of John, who sat at your feet, willing to learn and never like hung it over anybody else's head. That's, that's a miracle. That's your work. We think of Matthew, the tax collector, who, who was not, he was not following your law. He was not faithful to your people. Yet you called him, and he followed you immediately. And then he followed with, with men like Simon the Zealot, who would have seen things so differently And the amazing thing is you take that group of people, you turn them into your apostles and disciples, you build your church. May it be so among us. May we be such a witness to the world that they would look at us and say, how is this possible? Only by the power of their Savior, Jesus. Let it be so in our midst, in Jesus' name. 
We're now going to gather around the table. You just heard the words of Jesus saying, I am the bread of life. I mean, this, this is powerful. Uh, this is a moment where Jesus says, I am the one you gather around. I am the one you need. In this act, this moment of the church, I mean, think about how, how powerful this symbol should be. We all, no matter our background, no matter what brought us here, no matter who we are, we are invited to partake of one Savior. There's one body. We are, we are called and invited to partake in one salvation. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, one Savior. And it's Jesus. And if you can come and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you are saved and you are part of his people and nothing can cast you out. That's the invitation this evening, is to come and ponder what that means for you and what it means for everyone else who comes because we all come to the same table. Um, We're going to take a time of confession before we partake. This is just two minutes of silence. And if there's, if there's anything in here that you need, to, you need to grapple with before Jesus, this is a moment to, to cry out to him and say, help me or forgive me um, or teach me. Or, or even if you're just at that place where you just need to say, who are you? Who are you? Then do it. This is, this is a moment for that. And we're just going to leave two, two minutes for silence. And after that silence, Mike is going to bring us out with music. Um, I'll be here to distribute the... Uh, the bread and the wine. Giving will be in the back and we'll begin to, uh, to sing together, to worship him with our hearts as well as our mouths. So let's, uh, again, I'll pray and just uh, enter us into this time of confession. Father, you are good and merciful. You are full of compassion. You love to hear our prayers and you're eager to forgive us. You've provided yourself not because you want to gather us together and then make it difficult uh, to come. You, you've done all the work. You have died. You have lived the perfect life. You are offering yourself. You have served us. You've washed our feet. You've laid your body and blood before us. Give us hearts that will receive it and receive one another. Hear us now as we pray before you and confess anything we have to confess. May we find you merciful and gracious. Meet us now.